From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Florida Gators kept a remarkable streak in place this week, claiming a national title for the eighth straight year thanks to the women's tennis team and their conquest over Stanford. We'll cover that accomplishment in our roundtable with FloridaGators.com's senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, along with news on baseball's SEC championship, basketball's Igbunu's surprise, Jim McElwain's trip to Dallas, and softball's upcoming All-SEC Super Regional. We'll also learn about the backstory and development of SEC Pitcher of the Year Kelly Barnhill as she and her teammates make a push for the Women's College World Series. But first, once the rain finally stopped falling in Athens, it was time for a heavyweight showdown between the two powers in women's tennis. Stanford was hoping to add a stunning 19th National Championship trophy to their mantle, but instead it would be the 7th coming home with the Gators. In our weekly roundtable with Scott Carter and Chris Harry, Chris started us off by recalling a similar result the last time he followed tennis to the Peach State. It's funny, the last time I went to a a road tennis match was the 2012 NCAA uh, Finals. That one was against UCLA, and Florida won that too. So I guess I'm undefeated at the Dan McGill Tennis Complex as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is a really nice facility, but... uh, I went up with uh, athletic director Scott Strickland, who got to experience his first national championship as an athletic director. He, uh, Mississippi State, one of three schools in the country, Power Five schools, that's never won a national championship in any sport. Uh, Virginia Tech, Kansas State are the other two, by the way. But it was his first as a, at the University of Florida. Jeremy Foley, of course, won, I believe the number was 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's number one for Scott Strickland. I'm sure there will be others, but he was he was happy. Roland Thornquist was happy. It is his fourth national championship, the seventh for the women's program. It was the 10th time Florida and Stanford had met in the NCAA final. Uh, Stanford had a significant edge at 6-3, and three, I think. But this really deep uh, Florida team, talking to Roland afterwards, uh, you know, let's step back a second and go back what happened during the season. They won the indoor, the indoor nationals, beating North Carolina, a good North Carolina team. And then uh, lost this uh, 169 straight uh, home matches, which was the longest streak in the country of, I believe, any sport for consecutive home winning streak. They lost that to Georgia significantly. I think it was 4-1. to one. Mm. And then lost to Vanderbilt twice, lost to them in the regular season, lost to them in the SEC tournament. But he never had a doubt that this team was good enough. This, he thought this team was mature enough to withstand uh, those kind of things, that adversity, if you will, that kind of setback like that with kind of a gut punch to the team. Three seniors in Belinda Wolcock, Courtney Keegan, two of the mentally strongest players on the team. Uh, Belinda Wolcock was fantastic at NCAA tournament. Courtney Keegan was fantastic. Courtney Keegan went out there after they won the doubles point and really set the tone by just massacring her uh, match 6-0-6-0 on court six to put Florida up 2 nothing. Now, all I had to do was win two more of the remaining five matches. That kind of took some pressure off some people. And the person that probably took the most pressure off of Adam was uh, Ingrid Neal at court three because mm-hmm. she lost first set 5-7. And Roland actually made a uh, reference to this afterwards. Uh, she won great in the first set, but she came back strong in the second one. And he thinks it was because of that lead they had, Belinda Wolcock winning on court one, also giving them a 3 nothing cushion. Now they just got to win one more point. Ingrid Neal was able to play a little bit looser, but I tell you what, she had a hell of a match uh, going on with Taylor Davidson from Stanford, who just mere hours before, they'd gone into late because of the rain delays. She provided the clinching point against Ohio State to get them in the final in a 4-3 uh, bloodbath the night before. Mm-hmm. She actually had to go to the hospital after that match due to exhaustion and some wow. things going on with her legs or whatever. And then she had a medical timeout in the match with Ingrid Neal. They took about five minutes to her to kind of work her out, stretch her out a little bit. She won her first two points, but then Ingrid Neal finished her off, won the championship. They celebrated on the court. Again, it was kind of similar to when they did it uh, when I was up there uh, five years ago. But, you know, congratulations to Roland. Uh, four national championships for him. He's been here since 2002. Just a tremendous achievement for that program to come back and, and really kind of roll through those regular season setbacks. And I'm telling you, they were, they were dominant up there in, in Athens and uh, – they deserve to be hoisting that trophy. It's interesting. I don't know if, if you had the same experience, Scott, but watching it at home, it, it's such a dizzying event to follow because you've got potentially 
the game changer, the entire championship changer happening on a court that you're not looking That's at. That's right. Because they've got six courts going simultaneously. So you're looking at one court and you're seeing what's transpiring there. But it's possible something happening 100 feet to the left is changing the whole course. And what you're looking at might not even be relevant. So I'm curious, when you're there in person looking at it from your perspective, how do you take all of that in when there's so much happening and all of it can dictate the championship? Well, let's, let's just give you an example. Uh, it's 3 nothing, and maybe Brooke. Austin, who's a player who's played doubles and played singles in the U.S. Open. Uh, mm-hmm. She's playing at five, and uh, at court five, and she has two championship points to, to close out everything. Right. But she's locked in on what, and that's why you got the coaches are bouncing around mm-hmm. trying to keep these people focused, and it takes, of course, it takes internal focus as well. And, you know, she lost both those championship points, lost the set. Now we're going to a third set on that match. You're kind of starting all over, and she can't worry about what's going on somewhere else. Right. And when the, you're talking about six courts, across and the way the uh, Georgia is set up there's three courts on the, the courts four five and six are kind of below the other seat and you really can't see the scoreboard per mm-hmm. se but uh, you got to keep focus on on your match I mean like Courtney Keegan won on six she's double partners with uh, with Brooke Austin on five she's she's there for Brooke she's not going over and I'm interested in watching the potential closeout mm-hmm. match at court number three so uh, it's all going on and it's uh, it does have an uh, how does it translate on television do they bounce back and forth, I guess? Well, I mean, it, it bounces. I guess they have to, it, right? Yeah, it bounces back and forth, but then at any given moment, you're watching one court, but then you're wondering, wait, what's happening on court three mm-hmm. that might make what I'm looking at here relevant? Because, mm-hmm. as you said, once the match is clinched, everything stops. So just, That's right. That's as, they, right. as they noted last night, Florida won 4-1. to one. It's entirely possible if you played everything out, it would have been 4-3, to three, but it doesn't matter because it stops at that moment. It stops so at that moment. While you're watching a back-and-forth match on court three – you go to court six and someone just ended it and none of what you're watching before even matters. So I think right. that's what's so interesting is that something can matter so much and then in an instant it can become completely Yeah, yeah. Brooke, uh, Brooke Austin and Anna Donnellina are, are in real tough matches and, mm-hmm. and they, they know their match could potentially be the seventh point of sure. things like going – or excuse me, the, that decisive point. But yeah, then all they hear is shrieks. Right. They're right in the middle of a volley, and they drop their rackets, and they're sprinting to court three to get into the uh, dog pile, if you will. And, yeah, it's a cool moment. It's a cool moment for whoever wins it. Um, Virginia won its third straight national championship in men's on the on the indoor courts earlier in the day. And a couple of the girls ran over and got the Gatorade buckets and, and dumped them on uh, Roland, dumped them on Dave Balog, the assistant coach. And, you know, good for them. I mean, it's not like the Gators had any kind of like a mental kind of thing with Stanford. But, I mean, because they beat Stanford earlier in the season 4-1. Mm-hmm. to one, But it's it's fitting when you go beat the team. I believe Stanford has, uh, I think it's 18 NCAA titles. Wow. Uh, Six times they beat Florida in, in that final. I think they met as many as – I think this was the tenth time they met in the NCAA tournament period. F- Stanford ousted Florida last year when they were a number one seed. So exact a little bit of revenge uh, on that. But talking to Courtney Keegan afterwards, you know, this, this was really big for these seniors. Um, the last, I believe, this whole senior class, every team they lost to during in the NCAA tournament uh, during their time here ended up winning a national championship. So uh, they were able to hold serve, as you uh, pardon the pun, and – take it on through and um it was it was quite a way to go out for those goals so we congratulate roland thornquist and the tennis team for that national championship on a different level an sec championship was won last weekend by the baseball team and scott it was pretty unexpected relative to where they started the season uh yeah adam uh, you know at the start of the year this was a team that i don't think a lot of people probably penciled in to win the sec and i say that mostly because you knew they they had good talent returning uh you knew that Kevin O'Sullivan tends to uh, recruit very well, so there was always that uncertainty. But you knew the new players were going to have to produce, and mm-hmm. he was expecting them to, and they did. But you also lost some guys like A.J. Puck, Dane Dunning, Logan Shore, uh, you know, Sean Anderson at the closer role, Scott Moss, who had a big outing in the SEC tournament last year that put him on a lot of teams' radars. Mm-hmm. So that's five excellent pitchers right there they lost. Uh, and then, you you know, you lose a couple guys in the lineup like Buddy Reed and Pete Alonzo. So that's a lot of talent for a college team to replace in a matter of one sure. season. But what's happened really is this is a team that has gotten contributions from, you know, about everybody on the roster. You know, you look at them individually. I wouldn't say there's some guys having what you call super seasons. I mean, obviously Alex Fedeo has been excellent from the start. 
at number one starter, even though he did get roughed up in the Kentucky series last weekend. But again, you know, while in some ways that looked like it might set a bad tone for Florida, they win the next two to win the division and the overall conference title with LSU because they got contributions from guys like Nelson Maldonado, four RBIs in Saturday's win. Friday night it was kind of just a team effort all the way around. The Mark Colasavari hits a big home run early that kind of set the tone and they run away with that one that's really what defines this team adam just guys stepping up at the right time at key moments they did it all year it, it continued right until the end and you know they finally clinched the division and uh, the uh, sec title on saturday with that big win over kentucky as people are listening to this the team will be at various stages of the SEC tournament. Mm-hmm. They may still be competing. They may be out of it. But let's talk bigger picture. What does the SEC tournament mean for their overall fate? And is their NCAA tournament seeding already pretty much set? Well, I think they're definitely going to obviously host a regional and most likely super regional. I don't think anything they do up in Hoover is going to probably impact those two areas. But I think what this week really is for Florida, you know, there's some things to watch for. Uh, I, I look for – you know, Mike Rivera come back from his injury and actually catch up there mm-hmm. this week. Uh, I think getting him back before the regional and super regional, I think, is going to be big just to get him in game and maybe see if he can time up his swing early. You know, they won it without him because Kola Savari did such a good job and then splitting time with J.J. Schwartz, who's been going back and forth between catcher, D.H., and some first. And obviously, we've talked about Schwartz's second half of revival. That's been really a huge part of why they were able to finish strong down the stretch. And then, uh, you know, you're looking at also Christian Hicks is probably going to move from first to shortstop. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no question that losing Dalton Guthrie in the uh, Saturday win against Kentucky with that rolled ankle. I mean, that's a big loss for this team. I mean, mm-hmm. if you watch this team a lot, there's nobody on the roster who's more important than Dalton Guthrie. I mean, the guy plays an unbelievable shortstop. He's always in the middle of things offensively. A key guy to have in your lineup on the field at this time of year. They're hoping that he can uh, get treatment. He did go up to Hoover with them. He's going to get treatment all week. And they're hoping that by the time they get back to Gainesville and have a few more days to prepare for the regional, that maybe he'll be able to get back out there. And then Sullivan said after the the big win against Kentucky, you know, they're going to go up there. They're going to keep their regular rotation to stay in form with Fado and then Singer and then Jackson. And then, you know, if they're still in it near the weekend when it's crunch time, he's just going to let the young guys put them out there, see how they respond. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, that was a a situation last year when Scott Moss threw a a game of his lifetime, threw a shutout, and he ends up getting drafted, (laughs) what, fourth round. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty good way to make a statement. Maybe not in that way for these guys because they're even younger than a junior Mm -hmm. like Moss was, but it's a chance for maybe somebody to show you something on the mound that can help you as the season progresses. So I think those are the, probably the biggest things to look for. Uh, you know, if they're in it at the end, they'll obviously be trying to win it. But at the same time, I think it's all really more important in some ways just to try to get Guthrie healthy, get some young players some experience. So, again, the SEC tournament going on as we speak. Single elimination, then double elimination, then single elimination. It's very complicated, but make sure to check out FloridaGators.com or GatorsBB, and it'll keep you posted on their progress. A uh, sport that's been on the back burner for a little while, I haven't had a chance to talk about it recently until now, is Gator basketball. And uh, got some news, Chris, some good news. We talked for a while about players that were leaving and departing. Now we get some, uh, some better news about someone coming back. Yes, Johnny Bunu, who obviously blew out his knee, and toyed with the idea of uh, perhaps turn a professional, be it try to latch on with a uh, uh, an NBA team or developmental league or maybe going overseas because he probably wasn't going to get drafted in the middle of a knee rehab. He's coming back, so you're going you're gonna to have a fifth-year senior returning, probably be ready given his rehab situation probably in, in January sometime and plenty of time for the Southeastern Conference uh, season. And... Yeah, you just think about it. Uh, uh, if he doesn't come back, you maybe you go out and you try to sign a, a, an incoming freshman or mm-hmm. maybe you find a grad transfer. I, I don't know what the situation necessarily would have been. Maybe you hold the scholarship out for next year's signing class because of the core players you have coming back. But instead, um, assuming John can be, say, even 90% of himself, you're, put, you're bringing back a guy who's started, I played 59 games for Florida. I think if you throw in his starts he had at USF before he transferred, that's another 25 or so. He had a very, very experienced guy in there, a guy who toward the end of the season was really figuring some things out relative to what his role should be. John Igbunu should never come on a basketball court 
and think about scoring. John Bunu should play defense, should be a rim protector, should play great ball screen defense, uh, set screens for his play, and let offense find him because it will, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's on stick backs, lobs, stuff around the basket where guys making good entry passes or whatever. Uh, actually, Adam, that's what the NBA players were telling him, and Johnny Bunu found out that NBA players were telling him stuff about his what his role would be, what he should focus on. He was being told the same thing by his coaches the last few years. So he was starting to figure some things out when he got hurt. It was a shame he was coming off his first double-double of the season. But uh, one of the coaches pointed out to me, there wasn't one SEC game last year where John was uh, just significantly outplayed by a, a, a post player in a Southeastern Conference game, whereas if you go back a uh, year before, whether it was Scal, Labessier, or Damon Jones from Vanderbilt. I mean, you couldn't say that mm-hmm. about Johnny Boone last year. So, you know, he's going to help this team. Um, there's still some things to be figured out, what the roles for the incoming freshmen are going to be. Isaiah Stokes is a center of the future, uh, top 75-ish player, but he's coming off knee surgery he had in January. So uh, they were very happy to get the call from him, and they got that out of the way now. So he's months away from being able to get back on the court, but uh, it's a win-win for the Gators. I guess it's projecting out quite a bit trying to figure this out, but in terms of joining the team at that stage of the year, to what extent will roles already be defined, and how will he then fit into that picture when you've already played 15, 16 games with a certain group of players? Well, I think just knowing how he's played before, you can think of his role. He actually hurt his hamstring last December, missed two games, and he didn't start for, I think it was nine straight games. Kavaris Hayes became the starting center. Then John became the starting center until John got hurt again, and then Kavaris right. retook right. the place. So uh, you can see the uh, uh, front court um, right now, Kavaris Hayes at center, maybe, say, a, a keystone at the four. He's got to be much more consistent. And then uh, I would think this uh, uh, Igor Kolachov or um, Jalen Hudson, the transfer for Virginia Tech, Kolachov, of course, coming over from Rice, being the guys at that three position. But uh, I think John's role will be one that uh, that he already knows about, the team already knows about. And if he keeps to the bracketed in what I just talked about, again, he's an elite defender when he's locked in. His ability to play man-to-man in the post, which they didn't have with Kavaris Hayes. Kavaris Hayes could get pushed around a little bit by bigger guys in there. But now you play man-to-man in the post. That leads that lets your perimeter defenders go out a little bit. They don't have to dig so much when balls dropped into the mm-hmm. into the paint and what have you. So uh, I think his, his role will be relatively defined. I just got to assume that he'll know when they put him, but when he finally does get back on the court, this is it's not going to be Johnny Booney's team. He's going to have that role. It's going to be an important role. How many minutes that is, I guess his health will probably dictate that. And, of course, foul trouble to Believe it or not, we are less than 100 days away from the start of college football, and that means the hype machine is already going, and that included Jim McElwain heading to Dallas to start hyping up the biggest game to start a season we've seen from Florida in my lifetime, I think. I don't know if there's another comparison that that would make sense. It's been a long time. I mean, you know, they used to open against Miami uh, back in the 80s some, and they've had some big uh, showdowns, but really since the SEC split into two divisions, you know, they've kind of kicked it off with maybe a, a little less opponent than what they're going to face in the conference, but not this year. Uh, they're going to be in Arlington, Texas, home of the Dallas Cowboys there in, I guess they call it AT&T Stadium now. It was it's, still, to... it's still called Jerry's World, let's be honest. Yeah, it was, Jerry's it World. It was officially Cowboys Stadium, now it's AT&T Stadium, but everyone knows it is Jerry's World. No, you're right, Adam. It's uh, it's Jerry's World. It's going to be a, a good atmosphere out there, and you got, you know, he went out there. It was. I thought this was a good idea by the UAA to, uh, you know, McWayne traditionally goes around the state, obviously speaking to Gator booster clubs, and Atlanta is one of the regular trips because that's where the SEC championship game mm-hmm. uh, is. So you're going out to open in Dallas. Why not go out and visit the Dallas Fort Worth Gators Club? And that's what he did last night. Uh, him and his wife were out there, and some other uh, folks from the UAA. And uh, just from what I saw on social media, it seemed like the that's an area that uh, there's a lot of Gators out there. Are they uh, really in Dallas? Yeah, huh. you know, even though you think it's all Longhorn country. But one thing I've noticed about since I've been around, I mean, there's Gators everywhere from what sure. I can tell. I mean, just, you know, so it only makes sense that Dallas is one of those cities that pretty good job market. So I guess some Gators have found jobs out there and are working. But and there's a Gator who played in Dallas who was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so that that probably didn't hurt either. You know, maybe some people latched on to Florida through that. But uh, bottom line is uh, they were they were out there to kind of uh, hype up the game, uh, meet some of the folks out there who will be 
heavily involved in hyping up the game locally. I mm. mean, they want to get people excited for this, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to that because it's it's just different, you know, than what we are traditionally used to mm-hmm. uh, to start off the season. And it's against Michigan, Jim Harbaugh. It seems like he's always making news or he finds a way to inject himself into the headlines. Yeah, I mean, they just got back from Rome for goodness sakes, <laughs> which I'm hoping. Is something maybe the Gators can do. I, yeah, you I want, definitely you want to get would, on that trip. I you document on, everything. I've been to Rome. I'd rather go somewhere where I haven't been, but it would be nice to – it would be pretty cool to see something like that one day. I don't know if that's another tradition that NCAA will try to <laughs> cut down. I remember last year Harbaugh started those uh, the satellite, satellite camp camps. Issue, they yeah. quickly stepped yeah. in. Harbaugh but, ruins the fun for everybody. Yes, but bottom line is uh, I'm looking for – Gators got some something to play for in that rematch because, you know, it's only going to be when you look at the calendar about what – 20 months since the time they yeah, lost that bowl game uh, in both Harbaugh and McElwain's first years mm-hmm. to that game in Dallas. So, I mean, it's a game that there's going to be a sense of urgency level there for the Gators right from the start of camp, really throughout the summer. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And obviously, a lot of folks in Dallas are looking forward to it based on what we saw last night. And just to prove the Gator Nation is everywhere, there are people that listen to this podcast in Iceland, yeah. in the Czech Republic. It's amazing the places you see that people are listening to the Gator Tales podcast. It's everywhere. Uh, but a lot of the Gator Nation's focus will be on Gainesville this weekend for Super Regionals. It's Florida, it's Alabama, and Chris, it's a 116 matchup. But when you consider the history and you look at what happened for both teams in, in regionals, it's probably going to be a lot closer than that would suggest. I would think it's going to be come down to pitching. Sure. I mean, you're the softball expert, Adam, but uh, uh, you're talking about you know four of the elite pitchers in the country facing off. Um, I would imagine. Uh, I don't think I'm giving any secrets away here, but I would imagine Kelly Barnhill <laughs> is going to probably pitch game one, and I imagine for Alabama it's going to be Alexis Osario. Two very similar pitchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen Alexis pitch. Um, the way Florida played last week, Bass kind of got going with their eight hits in game three, but they struggled to hit the ball. Sure. Um, they won the first game uh, against Oklahoma State, which was the, the second game in the series after Delaney Gorley no-hit FAMU in the first game. Um, they won that game 2 nothing, but uh, uh, they only got three hits in that game. Um, the next game did a little bit better, managed to get on base. They got seven hits um, against Brandy Needham, who was the pitcher from Oklahoma State. Ended up losing the game one nothing on a base hit in the bottom of the six. So, like Tim Walton said after the first game, he knew he had Kelly Barnhill out there with a 2 nothing lead, but at the same time he goes, one swing of the bat, if they get a run on base, one swing of the bat can tie the game. Mm-hmm. And, again, we saw last year what small margin of error can do when teams aren't hitting, when Georgia came in here and hit a walk-off homer and when Florida had a 2-1 lead in the bottom of the seventh. And uh, just like that, their season was over. Kelly Barnhill was in the dugout. She just gotten warmed up. Uh, she thought she was going to pitch in a decisive game three that day. She never got a chance. This is a girl whose dream has always been to pitch in the College World Series. Play in the Olympics, which mm-hmm. you may get a chance down the line. Now that the Olympics, Most people think she softball. will. Yes, yes. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Kenny Gajewski, who knew, knows her very well from recruiting her, the Oklahoma State coach, when he was obviously here with Tim Walton for three seasons, he said she may be the best pitcher in the world. Uh, if not one of them. So uh, she may get that chance. But first and foremost, she wants to get a chance to pitch in Oklahoma City. To do that, she's got to pitch really well in Gainesville this weekend, and she'll obviously get that chance. Uh, if it goes to a second game, uh, you know, obviously Delaney Gorley will probably get that shot against Sydney Littlejohn. Excellent pitchers. But I look at – and we're sitting here talking about uh, Florida struggling to score runs. I believe Alabama in their two games last week in defeating Minnesota in their regional – both were one nothing games. Both one nothing games. So yeah. uh, they were having trouble hitting whatever Minnesota was throwing at them. Uh, so uh, I guess two similar teams uh, with great great uh, talent. It will come down to pitching. Should be pretty exciting. And given the way both those games played out, it seems that the real key for both teams scoring first and scoring early because we see these games completely change based on who gets on the board. First. I just think it's so it's natural, especially if you got again the team that you know is having trouble manufacturing runs. If they're playing from behind, they're probably swinging differently. They're probably thinking differently mm-hmm. at the plate and all that stuff. So I would feel much better from the Florida standpoint if Kelly Barnhill has has a one-run lead, two-run lead, or something like that getting late in the game. But uh, you, you can't take anything for granted. I mean, these last two Florida teams have been very different 
from the Lauren Hager Florida sure. teams, uh, from Stephanie Toft, Bailey Castro. Mm-hmm. I mean, those girls could come up there and hit home runs, and all of a sudden, you know, you're winning three nothing in the second inning, four nothing in the fourth inning, or what like that. And uh, with great pitching, that that's a really good place to be in. Um, but that's not what these Florida teams are. So they have to live with what they have, and it's really not that bad. They're uh, <laughs> they're the number one team in the country. They've only lost about what is it seven times this year? They're fifty three and seven. Kelly Barnhill's twenty three and two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she lost to Florida State, which is a top-five team, and she lost this game to Oklahoma State the other day because her, the bats weren't working. Again, I go back to what she said. She was warming up. Get, she was waiting for a chance to pitch in a Super Regional last year, which never came. So I imagine she's going to be pretty jacked up for this game this weekend. And one big difference with Super Regionals this year compared to the past is that the format has changed. So now, instead of playing one game on day one and then potentially a doubleheader the second day if necessary – it's now a three-game, three-day series if it goes that far. So I guess there's a lot of ways you can look at this. What I would think is that's to the advantage of a team riding a hot ace because, in theory, it's much easier to throw three separate days Absolutely. than to throw back-to-back games if they want to call on you that frequently. Yeah, it's funny because I, I got lit up pretty good. Uh, or just People were hitting me on Twitter uh, during the, the game um, where Florida played. It's, uh, it's game three in that format that we're talking about uh, last Sunday. In regionals, yes, which, it, which it, is still a doubleheader. Correct, correct. And they say, well, why, why did uh, uh, you know, Barnhill pitch that game and lost? Mm-hmm. And there were people who well, you're not you're supposed to save your ace. Well, I mean, Tim Walton is, deals unconventionally sometimes with how he uses pitchers. He proved that in the World Series in 2014. He proved it in 2015, whether yeah. it was using Lauren Hager or whether it used Delaney Gorley during her freshman year. Um, he knows his pitching staff. Mm-hmm. He, they know – what they're going to do. So, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. This seems like more of a setup kind of thing where it would be if it went to a, to a decisive third game, uh, obviously Kelly Barn will be that pitcher. Another very busy week and we'll have even more to talk about next week. Look forward to sitting out with you guys then. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Over most of its history, softball has been a sport where one dominant arm can carry a team. During Florida's staggering run over the last decade, the game has trended more toward power hitting, but don't tell that to Kelly Barnhill. The sophomore came in with loads of hype and has lived up to it even sooner than expected, with conference and national accolades coming in almost faster than they can be counted. Her .09 ERA in the SEC was eye-popping, but the Gators' one nothing loss to Oklahoma State and Regionals with her in the circle proved that anything can happen in the postseason. We sat down with the Georgia native to discuss her dominant season and future goals, but began by addressing what the team learned after being pushed to the brink by the Cowgirls. I felt like it was a really good experience for us, losing that game and being able to come back and rally and come out there with a new energy to just go after it out there. What happened in between the games? and What was said? What was going on in that 30-minute period when your season was on the line? We didn't actually say a lot. We went in, we changed uniforms, we got some food, and we all just kind of were just sitting there. We're just kind of thinking about it. We're thinking about uh, how we wouldn't want this to be our last game. Like, there's a chance it could have been our last game. Mm -hmm. So we're just thinking about we don't want this to be over. We love playing with each other. We love our seniors, and we want to play with them and play as a team as long as possible. We'll get back to softball and what's coming up this week in a second, but now I want to dial things back a little bit and talk about where you came from, your background, which is very familiar. We're both from Marietta, Georgia, but tell us about your family and and where you came from. My mom's from California, and my dad, um, he was military, so he moved around. Mm -hmm. Uh, They actually met in California. They're both playing in a little beach volleyball league. That was really cool. Um, I also have a younger brother. Because of my younger brother, his name is Bryce. Uh, mm-hmm. He's actually graduating this next weekend. Oh, wow. So he's graduating on Thursday, <laughs> and then they're having a graduation party on Saturday. So my parents won't be able to come down to this weekend. So. Really? They can't delay the graduation at all? No, no, unfortunately not. My mom always says, got to remember we have two children. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm super excited for him, though. He's had a good senior year, um, and they just they did get knocked out of playoffs or class, but they went pretty far. So, and now he's excited to go off to college. He's going to go to Georgia Southern next year. What role did he play in your sports development growing up? Were you guys competing in sports? What did you guys play? Well, we always, we both played uh, Little League Baseball and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, he didn't quite have the attention span for it. Uh, <laughs> he'd throw up rocks in the outfield and stuff, but he uh, actually found lacrosse and he really loves, he really loved lacrosse and he played travel lacrosse for a while and he also does football wow. and um, he also did wrestling for a couple of years too. So 
he was always doing more contact sports, very active sports. Um, I played two seasons of soccer. Okay. Did not go well. Didn't work out? No. Why not? No. Too much running. Too much uh, running. Too much running. <laughs> I hated Pitching is so much more stationary. Exactly. You know, <laughs> I uh, did the first season. I told my mom I hated it. She's like, we're going to make sure you really don't like it. You're doing another season. Mm-hmm. So I think the only uh, highlight, there's a highlight reel of uh, us playing soccer. I think the only uh, time you see me in it is when I'm getting hit in the face with a soccer ball. <laughs> so. <laughs> is that where the mask comes from in softball then? Was it the, the trauma from soccer? No, no. Um, when I was... Uh, playing 10 and under I think maybe 10 and under 12 and under mm-hmm. uh our coach encouraged people to wear a mask and um my mom liked the idea and I was okay with it so and it just gives you a peace of mind especially with nowadays with how hot bats are sure. I mean people say don't pitch it down the middle but people make mistakes so <laughs> and I've seen what happens when people get hit in the face it's not pretty so you wore the mask from that point on when did the grunt become part of your repertoire I think it's always been a thing. I mean, like, I don't really hear it at all. I Everyone mean, else hears it. <laughs> I know. Actually, some of the other girls say, like, they don't really hear it anymore either. So wow. you just kind of grow accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the whole experience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, it's just something I've always done. I really can't pinpoint it to say, like, yep, this is when I started grunting. <laughs> so when did you switch from baseball to softball? Because you know, a lot of softball players start in baseball, and then at some point they, they switch over. I switched over pretty early. Like, I just did, like, t-ball and stuff, mm-hmm. and then, like, maybe the littlest little league. I don't even remember what they call that. But um, I started playing softball, like, you put the T on the thing, and the coach mm-hmm. pitches it, like, when I was about six. And then when did pitching become your thing? When did you realize that was something you were interested in? I started pitching when I was 10, actually kind of getting serious with it. Ended up taking lessons uh, from Champions Fast Pitch in Marietta, Georgia, I kept on with that, and I still even go there nowadays. When I um, go home, I see my pitching coach, Stacey Tambora. We used to have a joke back home, mm-hmm. like uh, during the summers or whatever, like from going tournament to tournament. She's like, if I go two weeks without seeing Stacy, my form's going to go to like – You're going to lose it. It's, it's, gonna, it's just going to go away. <laughs> it's like having a bullpen without Rocha here right. in Florida. Just, right, right, <laughs> Things just don't go well. <laughs> need, yeah, need to have your centers there to exactly, keep you grounded. Exactly, you know. As pitchers, can we, we can start doing all sorts of crazy right, things. Right, right, right. You guys people just like, get out of control. This is how you do it. <laughs> so when did you realize from that point that softball was something you could use – as a vehicle to take you so many different places? I really had no idea softball would be able to take me to all these different places. When I was in middle school, like when people started the recruiting process, it wasn't as early as it is now. But people would ask me like, hey, where do you want to go to college? I'm like, wherever they'll give me a scholarship. You know, (laughs) I don't really have a preference. I never really was into college sports or anything. So I didn't have like a favorite team or Mm -hmm. a favorite place. So uh, when I got it in my freshman year of high school, uh, I started getting offers and stuff. I was like, oh, I can actually choose. Right. I got to go to a bunch of different visits and stuff and got to see different places in the SEC and got to experience like those different environments and everything. So it was really cool in the recruiting process. So when did Florida become the choice for you? I know Stanford was on the list. You're waiting on some Ivy Leagues maybe to see if that came through. How did Florida become the right place for you? Ultimately, the environment here with the uh, coaches um, and the way they interact with the players and the sort of winning mentality here mm-hmm. was probably one of the major factors in my decision. I wanted the overall experience. I feel like an education is what you put into it. So I can get just as good as an education here at Florida as I could at Stanford uh, while playing the highest level softball that I could. When you decided to go to Florida and even now when you go back home, how much grief do you get? from Georgia fans? Because I'm sure you grew up with a lot of people that went to Georgia, Georgia fans everywhere. What do they think when you're out there dominating Georgia and you're here for Florida? (laughs) Well, my two best friends growing up, one is a huge Tennessee fan and the other is a Georgia fan. (laughs) So um, they always say, we're always going to cheer against the Gators, but we'll cheer for you. (laughs) Right, right. So I get a lot of that, especially if if we lose a game to a team. They're like, hey, they beat you that one game. I'm like, be quiet. That's why you can't lose to them, right? Exactly. <laughs> Not allowed to lose because I don't want to hear about it when I go home. And also, like, my um, my pitching coach I talked about earlier, Stacy, and my travel ball coach both went to uh, Florida State. Oh, wow. So uh, <laughs> The connections just keep expanding here. When I signed to Florida, my um, travel ball coach was like, fine, but I'm never wearing those colors. <laughs> he came to my signing day, and I, I draped, like, a Florida, like, blanket over him. <laughs> and he crossed his arms, and then he did the little um, tomahawk. Did the that, tomahawk chop, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
everyone's pretty cool about it. They're like, okay, well, we're not cheering for the Gators, but mm-hmm. we're chill for you. And when you got here and started developing, what did you feel like the biggest change was for you in your game? Did your rise ball get sharper? What, what did Rocha help you to do that maybe you weren't able to do before? The main thing Rocha has really, really helped me with, um, or the two main things actually, is the mentality of pitching mm-hmm. as well as locating the pitch. Being like, I'm going to throw this pitch at this location every single time and it's going to go there. I can throw it here, here, and here mm-hmm. every single time. I don't have to think about it, you know, just going out there and not thinking. Not thinking is always right. great. <laughs> right. When did the rise ball become your signature pitch? At what age did that develop? This is one of those things that I don't quite remember, actually. Like, as long as I can remember pitching, like, I've always had a rise ball. It's always been the pitch that I developed. Mm-hmm. A lot of people work early. Like, when we ever do camps and stuff, little girls come in, and they're all about curveballs and all that kind of thing. And I'm like, hey, raise your hand if you ever pitch a rise ball. Look around, not a single hand's raised. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. Just What's-? me. I'm like, yeah. how many people know how to throw a rise ball? Like, two hands. Okay, guys, we're working on rise balls today. Right. Why is it not more prevalent, do you think, especially as, as effective as it can be? I think it's not as prevalent, especially at younger ages, because the key to a really good rise ball is spin. Mm-hmm. But it's also being able to throw it at a hard enough to actually make it move. It's not just like sheer, you can't just like throw it really hard. But right. you have to have like, that's the balance between the two, because at a certain point, some people only throw it from low to high, and it doesn't have that jump. Um, so I guess, uh, especially at a younger age, it's easier to learn a curveball or pitch like that that moves to the side. And it's relatively easy mm-hmm. to get the uh, movement on the ball. I talked to Delaney about this a few weeks ago, but asked her with her changeup how much pride she took and how much joy in making batters look really, <laughs> really foolish. And you've done a lot of that this year as well. Does that give you a lot of excitement? How much of a kick is it when you can get those kind of strikeouts where all Americans are swinging at a pitch that's a foot over their head? It's so amazing, especially at the level that we play. Like you said, all Americans every Mm -hmm. weekend here in the SEC. And you're like, okay, maybe they beat me last time, but I'm going to go up there and get them this time. And you get them with that pitch. You're like, yes, I got this. This is my pitch. It's my mound. And uh, you just go out there and have so much fun. That's what I love about pitching. It's just if you're not having fun out there, like, I don't know why you play. As you started throwing harder and harder, was it difficult to find people that were willing to catch for you? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> people do not like catching for me. Uh, growing up, everyone would be like, oh, I'll catch her, I'll catch her. I'm like, okay, who's got me? <laughs> I'm like, you have Kelly today. No, you have Kelly. Okay, guys, thanks. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult, and I understand why it's difficult. It's <laughs> I wouldn't want to catch me. Yeah. You could, there is nothing you could do to get me behind that plate. I admire catchers so much for what they do. And my dad. I admire my dad, too. My dad sat mm-hmm. on a bucket for years. And even when I go home, he gets a little rusty. But uh, <laughs> he still sits on that bucket and doesn't complain. But, yeah, even in high school, mm-hmm. we had a problem with finding a catcher who could catch. I literally turned their hands black and blue, mm. and I felt so bad. And there was nothing I could do. I was just throwing my pitches. Right. So what, what did people do? Did they get thicker mitts? Did they put pads? I mean, how did you ultimately find someone to catch you? They'd get thumb guards and padding in the gloves and just repetition, just working with them a lot, mm. trying to get them to be able to find a way to catch it without hurting themselves. I talked to Coach Walton about this a week ago, asked him about your growth from year one to year two, and he specifically mentioned something you did for Janelle Wheaton, who's caught most of your games this year, where you went and, what, did you get her a gift certificate or you got her, you, you took care of her in some way, and he said that was such a sign of your maturity and your growth as a player and, and as a person. Can you tell us that story and, and how she reacted to that? Yeah, um, it had been a, like a particularly like just tough week for the catchers. They've been catching so many bullpens and everything. So uh, actually, I went out and I got Starbucks gift cards for all of our catchers, and I just kind of like put it on their chair and then sent them a little text saying thank you so much for all you do. I couldn't be able to do it. I know you guys work so hard, and sometimes you may think you get overlooked, but we as pitchers always appreciate you guys. So. I can't even state how much a catcher means to a pitcher. They call it a battery, and mm. it's it's true. Like Without a good catcher, you don't have a good pitcher. You talked a few minutes ago about the importance of coming into a program with a winning culture. And when you got here, the team had just won back-to-back national championships. What kind of weight did that put on, on your shoulders in a way? Because you came in with a lot of expectations. Everybody knew your ability. Coming into a program that already won so much, how did that affect you? 
I mean, everyone came in here wanting to win, and there's always that thing. But you try to ignore external pressures and things, but mm-hmm. there's always that whisper in your ear like, oh, got to get that three-peat or, like, got to keep on winning. I mean, you always want to win, and you want to work to win. But sometimes that there is that pressure there, being in a winning program, especially in a program like Florida. Mm-hmm. You lose a game, they're like, oh, my gosh, this team's – like, what is, what's right. happening to what's this wrong? team? Like, what's wrong? Like – is that the girls aren't good, the coaching, something mm-hmm. like that. Like Then you've got to think about, like even if we win, people are going to be like, well, they should have won like this. They should have done this more. Like So that's why like you can't think about external people. Like You just got to focus on yourself because no matter win or lose, people are going to talk bad, and you just got to ignore that kind of thing. To that effect, you've had this season where you've set records and you've put up unbelievable numbers, and yet at times people do have success against you. And then people are almost shocked. And with some players we've asked last weekend, when Kelly gave up a run, how did you react? I mean, for you in the circle, what is your mindset when someone does occasionally have success against you when you've been so dominant? How do you respond to that? I mean, I'm human. So, <laughs> um, Hasn't seemed that way all season. But yeah. I am human, and we do have amazing hitters. Um, you don't make it to the postseason without being a good team. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, in the SEC, you have amazing uh, players, so... It's going to happen. You're going to give up runs. You're going to give up hits. And you know what really matters is how you respond to that, how you move forward. It's like a so what thing. So mm-hmm. what I, if I just gave up a hit? This next batter's not getting on. She's not going to hit the ball. She, heck, she's not even going to touch the ball. Right. Like You really have to go by that, okay, that happened, put it aside, and now move forward. You've also got really experienced and successful pitchers to work with as part of the staff, specifically a couple of All-Americans in Alicia Ocasio, Delaney Gorley. Can you touch on the impact both of them have had on you on and off the field? They both have had a great impact on my game in different ways. Uh, I aspire to be as athletic as Lily is. She literally can play probably any position on this field mm-hmm. any day if she truly wanted to. Um, to be able to have that sort of athleticism is a gift and to be able to pitch as well as well as she does is amazing and I just try to like look at how she fields and how she goes through everything I don't try to emulate it but I try mm-hmm. to um, learn from it and Delaney is a great asset as well because sometime I really want to learn her change up I've tried <laughs> a couple times but hasn't quite stuck um but other than that like Delaney's just always been there like mentally like having frustrating bullpen or something Delaney's like hey just calm down you know just think about like this or this um she's very good about that kind of thing you're known over the course of your career for throwing lots of no hitters you have perfect games going back to high school as well and, and the best one was it a no hitter or a perfect game with the 21 strikeouts did anybody get on in that game or no? They did. They did? Okay. Yeah. So there's no hitter with 21 strikeouts. Still not too bad. Mm-hmm. When you're putting up games like that, how much are you thinking about it in the moment? And are you superstitious when you realize something like that's happening? Well, the goal is always to never think about it mm-hmm. and pray that no one else is talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the moment, I do think about I do occasionally find myself drifting that way. I'm like, oh, this is happening. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. Don't think about that. Mm-hmm. Don't think about that. Just this pitch right now. So um, I feel like in general, for me personally, I do better when I'm not thinking about the larger picture of an inning or a game. Mm -hmm. I work better when I'm just thinking about that individual pitch. The success that you've had has allowed you to do a lot with USA Softball, both the junior national team, now the senior national team. What are some of the coolest places that softball has enabled you to travel? Well, this summer, I'm super excited. I get to go to the Dominican Republic, mm. and I haven't been there, so I think that'll be really cool. Uh, but the most exciting place that we've gotten to go is Japan, mm. and I absolutely love Japan. I thought it was so cool. It's just a completely different culture than we have in the United States. And I just personally, like, my goal in life is to travel. When people ask me what I want to do, I'm like, I want to travel. Oh, okay. <laughs> is that a job? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the goal. You know, that's why I, I chose my majors because I, I'm double majoring in public relations and economics because I thought they'd be broad enough to get me a job wherever. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are two very um, broad fields that could have jobs available in any country. I just love being able to go to a new place and see the history and the culture. Some people think it's boring, but like I love to go see like ancient ruins mm-hmm. and learn about like that kind of thing when I get to go to a new place. Where have you not been that you'd like to go? What's on your, your list? 
Well, Japan was number one, but I've been there now. So Germany, I really want to go to Germany. I took two years of German in high school and I mm. took two semesters here. So I'm really interested in going there, especially with uh, a lot of the World War history and stuff they have. Um, also, my dad was stationed there when he was in the military. So oh, wow. uh, he was actually there when the Berlin Wall fell. So mm. it's a combination of the sites and the history and everything. And also, I want to kind of be able to, you know, maybe test my German a little bit. Mm -hmm. see, see how well you learned it in your four years, right? Exactly. So speaking of Japan, that's where the 2020 Olympics are going to be in Tokyo. A lot of people think you might be pitching for Team USA at that point. How much do you think about that a few years down the road? I hope I'm pitching. Uh, I hope to be there. That is my dream since I've been a little girl. It's really far off right now, so I'm not thinking about it too much, just thinking about... Uh, Right now, just thinking about getting to the NCAA tournament, mm -hmm. and uh, when I go this summer, we're just thinking about each tournament and each thing we're playing, because we actually have to qualify for the Olympics first, so mm -hmm. we have Dominican Republic is one of the qualifiers for the World Cup, um, which will be in 2018 in Tokyo, and it's also a qualifier for the Pan Ams, which is also going to be in Lima, Peru, which is going to be really cool. Mm. So, like, it's a process. Each thing is a step. What are the differences between playing with your Florida teammates than playing with Team USA? Both teams are amazing, and I love the girls on each team, but the environments are a little bit different. It's not like you see these girls for pretty much two-thirds of the year, which mm -hmm. is what you see your normal teammates for. You see them for, like, the summer, and we don't get to do a whole lot of practicing and everything. Like, one or two weeks of practicing, and we just go out and play games. Um, so it's a little bit different in that aspect. Also, everyone's been taught differently. And so you kind of like, we're not going out there and learning new things, but we're just like getting suggestions of what we are to do. I think the coaches said at one point, like, you got here, so we know you're good. So we're just trying to keep you. We're trying to sustain what you already do. When you're off the field, you have time away from softball. What do you like to do outside of, we, we've established travel, but outside <laughs> travel, if you're in Gainesville and you can't go anywhere, what do you like to do in your free time? Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the number one answer I get for most athletes is sleep when they have free time. Um... I also really like reading. Like, I could take a 300-page book and just go sit out by the pool and finish it in two hours. Wow. When you're getting ready to go pitch, what are you listening to? Do you like do you hype up music? Is that a big part of what you do? Not so much here in Gainesville because we blare music in the locker room. Mm -hmm. and You can hear it all the time. You can hear it, yes. And uh, I'm not in control of that. Nobody really wants to listen to my music. It's okay, though. What's what's your music? I kind of like – I like alternative punk pop stuff, mm -hmm. like Panic at the Disco. It's my favorite band. Ah, yeah. Yeah, Panic at the Disco, Fallout Boy, like that kind of stuff, Blink-182. And they're more into what? Hip-hop, okay. rap. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not big into that, but they like it. It's pump-up music, so. You got to go with what everybody else likes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so when you're getting pumped up for this weekend, as we talk about Super Regionals, what was the reaction from you and your teammates when you found out it was Alabama that was coming here and the rivalry that that sets up? I think it's actually really nice and kind of cool because we didn't actually get to play them in SEC this year. So we'll be able to face this Alabama team and playing another SEC team is always great. Uh, we'll know we'll get a great game and uh, we'll have lots of hopefully we'll have lots of people out here yes. to support us. It's the third straight year that Florida's played an SEC team in Super Regionals. What are the advantages and the disadvantages to playing an opponent that you're so familiar with? Well, there are advantages because you actually have, like, if you've played them in SEC play, then you have, the batters have their notes on the pitchers, and mm -hmm. the pitchers know what they've thrown to these batters last time. But it's also a disadvantage because the other team has the same thing on you. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of um, scouting going on. I mean, even if it wasn't an SEC team or not even a team we played, there's so much video nowadays that everyone has good scouting reports. Florida-Alabama has been one of the great rivalries in this sport for years now. I'm sure when you were growing up watching softball at the World Series, those were a lot of the games you were seeing, Florida versus mm -hmm. Alabama. From what you've seen from both afar and then being a part of it last year, what do you think makes the rivalry so unique? I think what really makes our rivalry with Alabama unique is that we both teams have a lot of respect for each other. They play very classy softball, and we respect that. Uh, we think they're a great ball club, and they have great hitters and great pitchers. We just love playing them because we always know it's going to be a great game. You had a chance to pitch against them last year here in Gainesville. 
How helpful is that experience or because it was over a year ago, is it less relevant? I don't think it's particularly relevant this year. I feel like they have a new team and we have a new team. So, I mean, sure, there are a couple batters we probably still have notes on, but mm. batters and players develop from year to year. Uh, just take me, for example. Right. So <laughs> we'll see. I'm just really excited to go out there and throw. So final few things for you. You're notoriously a perfectionist. Even with everything you've accomplished this year, in what ways do you think you can still get better? There's always room for improvement everywhere. Uh, I think particularly something I want to get better at is locating pitches. I say that's the thing I've gotten better at from this year to last year, but I still think I really can improve that. Um, and something also in the future maybe for next year is to more working on developing a change-up. I see what Delaney does the batters with her change-up mm -hmm. and – that would be a really nice tool to uh, have in my arsenal. Last year, you guys were in a really similar spot with Georgia coming in, the one sixteen matchup, and all the talk was about the three-peat, like you mentioned earlier, and then that all ended very suddenly. How much does that creep into your thinking as you prepare for this weekend, the idea of not necessarily avenging that because it's a different opponent, but getting over that hump that you weren't able to clear a year ago? The seniors and the juniors keep talking about Oklahoma City and mm -hmm. how amazing it is to play in front of those crowds and all the support and how amazing it is to win a national title. Us sophomores and freshmen were like, okay, that must be nice. Right. You know? We hear about how great these are, and we want to experience it for ourselves. And, of course, we want to be able to get the seniors back there for their last year and the juniors to be able to experience it again and to – be able to help each other get there because right now the highest level of softball is the college world series mm -hmm. it's the pinnacle of softball and to not be there it's devastating like going home and sitting there and watching every single game on tv mm. it was painful um and i never want to experience that again <laughs> <laughs> i hope to be at the college world series for the next three years well kelly thank you so much for your time we appreciate it and good luck in super regionals well thank you so much thank you for having me. this was a lot of fun and that's going to do it for this week's show if you haven't already done so we encourage you to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow follow softball showdown with Alabama beginning on Thursday night at 7 on ESPN and come back here next week as we'll review that series as well as preview baseball heading into regionals until then I'm Adam Schick and I'll see you at the ballpark <laughs>